it is a pleasure to be back. It's been a minute. Thank you for those who've been praying for, for me and family. And again, um, COVID at the beginning of December. Um, I guess the only blessing was is that it cleared the way for Christmas to be a little bit, <laughs> a little bit more social. Um, but it is, it's, it, I kind of, I kind of, I think it dawned on me yesterday um, how long this has been because as I was typing, my the cramp in my fingers was was quite prominent, and I've realised this has been a minute, so it is um, refreshing to be back here and to be able to share the word of God with you. Um, the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation, I mean, I think especially it's, you know, in my, in my early Christian life, this was a book of great interest because in a sense, everybody wants the excitement of feeling they're going to be in the, in the, in the last great push to the end. And um, no doubt when you, when, again, it's that, it kind of highlights that whole self-importance, isn't it? That, you know, um, God has saved the best for last because he saved me now, you know? And so there is a, there is a sense of self, <laughs> um, self-aggrandizement in there as much as, we, as much as we try to figure out what's going on. But I want to I take a long run up into Revelation, and so therefore, I want to take the time to pray now and kind of lay the ground of what we want to try and accomplish over the next 13 weeks because we need to change the way I believe we look at Revelation. And as I go through my, I guess, the teaching aspects and even the preaching aspects of my sermon today, then you, you will understand that I think a little bit better. So, let me pray and um, jump into my intro. So, Father, we're so grateful again at the beginning of a new year that we have the opportunity, dear Lord, to continue on in your word. And it is your word, dear Lord, Father, that you have left with us, along with your spirit, dear Lord, Father, that your church may thrive. And, Father, even as we will read today that the, even the very public reading of your word is to be a blessing to us. And those of us who have felt less than blessed, the opportunity to gather there, Lord God, and come around your word, hear it, Lord God, whether it be biologically or digitally, dear Lord God, we are blessed, dear Lord Father, to receive your word. We thank for your spirit, because your spirit is indeed the life, dear Lord Father, that connects us to you and comforts us and strengthens us. And it is your spirit that also teaches us, dear Lord Father. And so for that reason, dear Lord God, we do pray that the spirit of the Lord will indeed come and teach, dear Lord God. Because if, Lord, we are just merely relying on my words or any of the other uh, leaders uh, who will come up here and teach your word, then, Father, we would be lost. It is the spirit that moves within your word that makes it powerful. And so, Lord, we pray you will powerfully move amongst us as we go through this book. And may it stir us up, set us up, dear God, not just for 2022, but, Lord Father, if you should tarry for every year, every month and every day, dear Lord God, that should go on beyond, dear Lord Father, 2022. So give us strength, dear Lord, to receive your word. 
because, Lord, it is good for us. In Jesus' name. Amen. I want to start kind of like, as I was kind of going through, I always like to have an intro that kind of encapsulates some of the things that I think are kind of prominent within the study. So normally, by the time I get to writing up, um, numerous hours of reading have already occurred, and numerous hours of meditating, how do I teach this in this particular setting, and you know, and all the rest of it. And so all that happens, and you kind of get a theme. And one of the things that it reminded me of, especially most recently, is a, is a show that I used to watch back in the late 70s and the 80s, or me and my brothers and sisters used to watch. And it was called Wait Till Your Father Gets Home. It was a cartoon and it was basically these kids that always messed around and the, 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 the reoccurring theme of the mother would be, wait till your father gets home, and that was, that was it. You know, wait till your father gets, wait till your father gets, wait till your father gets home. And we used to watch this show, and when any of us messed up, that is, us as children messed up, and we knew that my mum will eventually tell my dad what happened, this is what my brothers and my sister used to sing to the person that got in trouble <laughs> and say, wait till your father gets, wait because they knew that a beating was coming. And they were all getting excited and they were ready to be a part of that audience that saw your punishment. Why do I go there? Well, maybe to lighten the mood, because like I said, it's revelation. But I think as you go through this sermon, as I go through this, it will become more and more relevant to you why I raise that. But let me start with a question. What goes through your mind when you think of Christ's return? And I know all the things that kind of get conjured up and we, again, revelation comes, you're going to see, you know, the skies torn apart and all the rest of it. And we tend to think of the more kind of, you know, and every eye will see him, you know, on a spherical earth, how does that work? You know, is God going to bring everybody to one point? You know, and all those things go through our mind. But we can only think of that great big manifestation the, the heavens and the earth and all the things being ripped asunder. But I want to take us as a way of laying our foundation for what we're going to learn in the rest of Revelation. I want to take us back to Matthew 24. Now, I don't want to read it. I was tempted to kind of put it in there, and insert it, but again, um, for the purposes of time, I thought maybe best and give you the opportunity to read through these passages for yourself. And let it be a part of your own study as you go through, because the challenge will be very real for you as well as a congregation to try and, re to try and go back to this book and understand it on a deeper level. But Matthew 24 is one of those key end-time texts that we can rely on because it came from the mouth of Jesus. And it was part of his teaching, but... In particular, 
What I think is helpful for us and is going to be helpful for us as we go through the book of Revelation is to look at the three parables he says at the end of those texts. At the end of that discourse in Matthew 24. So in the first one, which is not quite a parable, but it has parable quality, so I call it a parable, is found in Matthew 24. 36 to 51, and the ESV titles that section, no one knows the day or the hour. But it concludes with a little scenario of a household with servants and a master going away and the good servant feeding the other servants and the bad servants abusing the other servants. So that's why I said it's kind of parabolic. It has parable qualities to it. The next one comes in Matthew 25, verses 1 to 13. And it's the parable of the ten virgins, five wise, five foolish. And again, it is told in order to clarify that end-time discourse from Jesus. And again, most of us, I think, are familiar about the whole idea of it's that the scenario is um, a Jewish wedding where obviously initially the... The, the engagement has already happened. The marriage day when the bride, the groom will come and take away the bride to go live in the new house is that the bridal party will be waiting for the groom to return once he has prepared the house. And so um, no one knows when the groom will come. And no one suspects that it will he will come at night. Maybe so eager he is rather than wait the next night. Let's get this done tonight. People don't, you know, you've got to realize that some people are ready. The next one is the parable of the talents. Again, in Matthew 25, verses 14 to 30. And Jesus does these things. He, he normally has this huge amount of teaching. He does this huge discourse and then breaks it down by saying certain parables in order to kind of get the full I guess, way of understanding that teaching, breaking it down for us in smaller parts. The common theme for all these parables is that where are the, what are the believers doing whilst they are waiting for the return of their Lord? So throughout the discourse, you know, people, you're, you're hearing all these things that, you know, one will be taken and the other one will be left and one will be grinding and, and the other one will disappear. And so no doubt within the minds of the disciples was, what's the difference between the both? Why is that one taken and this one not? What defines, what delineates between the two groups? And so I believe that Jesus brings this teaching in order to clarify that very thing. What are the believers doing while they are waiting for the return of the Lord? And it is worth summarizing each parable for that theme within it. So the good servant, as I said in the first one, is diligently feeding the other servants, building them up. It is interesting here that the care of the servants is set as the priority rather than the master's household in general, his property, his Hard things. You know, are you looking after his table and wiping it down and his cups? And, you know, are you looking for, you know, looking after his wine cellar and all, you know, all those things. That's not the priority. It's actually the people in the household that is set as the priority. 
In contrast to this, the unfaithful servant is abusing the other servants under the guise that this guy doesn't seem to be coming back. I can run the household how I like. The ten virgins now are preparing for the return of the groom, as I stated. The wise have prepared themselves for a return in the night. Whereas the foolish had not prepared themselves for the night. Now, obviously, this being a parable and the night possibly being a symbol, I would suggest that the night here may very well symbolize a time of persecution or difficulty. Are you prepared to see your Christianity through persecution and difficulty? What are you doing to prepare for that? In the parable of the talents, the faithful servants are diligently putting their master's resources to work. Whereas the unfaithful servant is avoiding any kind of responsibility for his master's property. You can see that through these parables, a portrait is being developed about what the believer is doing. Which one fits your profile? As you kind of go through this one, am I building people up? Am I, being, am I preparing myself to go through tribulations and difficult times and hold on to my Christian faith? Am I diligently using the resources that God has given me for his kingdom, for his glory? Which suits you? So as I said, Jesus puts these parables forth in order to delineate what separates the saved from the unsaved, as already mentioned in Matthew 24. Jesus concludes his discourse by stating that no one knows the day nor the hour of which he will return. We need to remember this because the priority of the believer is not trying to figure out when he is coming back. It's one of my first clues as to why I brought up wait till your father gets home. It is not the priority of the believer to go and jump into the text and figure out the day and the hour as so many have given to themselves to for centuries. The priority of the believer, however, is to figure out, is, is to carry on as though he has never left. And that, I think, is the key. As though he never left. We are there on that, on that guise of like, you know, well, I'm going to get my act together when Christ returns. When the whole idea is that for the believer, the presence of Christ is very real for them. And it's as though he has never left them. Below, I will never leave you nor forsake you, even on to the very end of the age. We've got to take that as, at face value. There are no shortcuts to holiness. When I was a child, as I mentioned, I used to listen out for my dad's car to try and see if it was coming from a distance. 
because of our familiarity with it, we could have a slight lead in getting ourselves into a posture that will not reveal what me and my brothers had really been up to. My dad's car had a distinct, his engine, he, liked this, he still likes those powerful cars. And it was silver. I remember a particular one age, he had this silver Mercedes, and you could see it gleaming down the road. I believe that many of us think about the Lord's return, much like how I thought about preparing for my dad's return. There are some notable signs which I can look out for, and once I have caught them, I will get my serious Christian face on. But these parables do not support the idea that anything like that can work. As Revelations 22:11 states, let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. There are no shortcuts to being diligent and prepared as the day of the Lord will capture us as we really are. Rethinking Revelation. I think modern movies and novels have probably contributed more to our understanding of Revelation than any serious reading of the text within the biblical canon. In the same vein as my waiting for the signs of my dad's soon return, we presume that there is some fixed point in the future when the book will become relevant. So for the time being, the prophetic or the pastoral aspects of the book lays dormant and irrelevant to those living outside the last days. This is where movies and novels have given us ideas of prophecy that narrow our understanding of what, how biblical prophecy functions. We have seen those movies when someone comes and states to, uh, starts to talk about um, the ancient prophecy that they suspect is being fulfilled before their eyes. Hey, this is the old prophecy. I know what it is and it's there. Ghostbusters comes to mind, doesn't it? When they're seeing all these spirits flying around and it's all dark and all of a sudden, you know, the black guy, <laughs> this is written in the Bible, this is, this is the book of Revelations. And there are many others, many other movies and novels that go along this line, but however... Biblical prophecy and apocalyptic literature are not primarily about the future. Though it does have the future in view. Biblical writers, prophets, always had their present readers in their foreground. And it is to them he is focused. This all seems quite normative when you consider your own motivations towards writing, as you will no doubt have future readers in mind, but it's always to be to your contemporary audience that you will structure your book. When we tend to do something for the future, we put it in 
in the ground, in a time capsule, not to be published. Whereas Daniel was told to seal up the book, John, however, is told not to seal the book. Daniel 12, 4, it says this, But you, Daniel, roll up the seal, the words of the scroll, until the end of the, de- of the time of the end. Many will go here and there to increase knowledge. Contrast that now with Revelation 22.10. Then he told me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this scroll because the time is near. Prophecy, therefore, is about now and what God is doing to address current issues. How this relates to the future is based on the pattern of God's salvific history. Creation, full Redemption, recreation. When we understand this, we will begin to see how thousands of years of biblical history informs our current times. For example, as we go through the book of Revelations, we'll be able to see the parallels to the Exodus. How does God redeem his people? Well, much like he has always done. His people come to a nation for relief. Much like we come to whatever land we come to. But then they are trapped in a wicked empire. God then brings the empire under judgment. He sends plagues against it. And then he delivers his people. He then finally brings them into a new land in which they will find peace. Creation. Full. Redemption. Recreation. Salvation history. With this in view, the salvation cycle, view of the salvation cycle, we get some, a somewhat simplistic view of what prophecy does. And it is simplistic, but I believe it helps us. It gives hope to those who are going through difficult times because he says, you are coming to the point of redemption and recreation. And it gives warnings of trials ahead to those who are going through good times. Are you... Are you settled in the land? Are you pleasant? Are you, are you really good? Well, be prepared for trouble to come, such as what the time was Isaiah. Much of Isaiah works that way because he's talking about Babylon coming, where Assyria is there. God gives them relief from Assyria, but he says, you've got good times, bad times are coming. That's how prophecy works. It's, it's reminding you that the salvation cycle is still playing out. Until the end of the age. As we learn in James 1, the believer needs to build up an intentional appreciation of difficult times as part of his refining process in which he intends to present, in which God intends to present them as mature or perfect, as the Bible also states. How do we know this? Abraham had to walk to Mount Moriah, right? With Isaac. Intentionality. Jesus had to go to Jerusalem. Intentionality. Paul had to go to Jerusalem himself. Intentionality. I in, there is trouble waiting for you in Jerusalem. I'm still intending to go. And when they couldn't persuade him, 
Paul went. We've got to be careful. We're living in a time where we endeavor to avoid all forms of conflict or harassment. And that may not be healthy for us. Apocalyptic literature. It is worth mentioning something about how we understand the word apocalypse as well. Again, much of what we understand about this word comes from the media than the actual Greek word itself. Apocalypsi means uncovering. Now we can still run away and say that uncovering just means revealing the end, but even then the answer is not sufficient to understanding all the content in the book. For example, chapters 2 and 3 are about actual churches in the time of John. So this is our first disconnect with the so-called future events. We also find in chapter 4, with the heavenly throne room, that it seems to follow on from the events of Jesus' ascension in Acts 1. So rather than being completely future-centric, both current affairs and even past ones are also in view. For this reason, I believe that the broadest understanding of apocalyptics needs to be applied. The uncovering, then, is more about revealing the spiritual realm and how it interplays with natural events than it is just the specific events that lead to the end of the age. It's a book about that just shows you the spiritual dimensions of what's going on, which have very natural counterparts. So this is the reason why looking for specific signs of the, the moon actually turning to blood is not helpful. Seeing demons flying around, harassing people, is not helpful. Because if these things are happening in the spiritual realm, which our natural eyes can't see, then these things, will, we're looking for signs we will never see. With that now being laid, let's turn to Revelation 1. Reading from the ESV. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants, the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Grace to you and peace from him who is and was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of earth, on earth. 
to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priest to his, a, a kingdom priest to his God and the Father to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient, in, and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the Lord, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Phthira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstand, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the voice, the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven gold lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So this is the word of the Lord. Again, we've given ourselves, and so just before even I jump into kind of breaking down the text and, and you know, we don't have the time to detail, and obviously this is worth it, but this is the kind of things, the kind of detail I think Revelation, especially when we're rethinking it, desires, is really can only be accomplished through really rigid, rigid Bible study. You know, something we have to do intermediately. And so we're going to, as we've been doing out over the last year and a bit, we've been jogging through the Word. We've just been kind of like, going through and doing the highlights, so to speak. And so the opportunity to dig deep really is going to have to come from yourself if you want to do so. But we're going to hopefully give you enough to be able to help that study as we, as we come here week to week going through the text. So I only say that as a, as a you know, I wish I could go and fill in all the details that I, I, I wish I could, but time does not permit. So let me just kind of look at the text. So the prologue, verses 1 to 3. So John lays the premise of his book and stroke letter as a revelation of those things that must 
soon take place. The first thing worth noting here is that this is inevitable. These things that have been, you know, these things that have been, are about to happen are inevitable. There are certain things in life, and, and again, I'm going to go probably back to an Isaiah or Hezekiah type situation. There are things that we need to pray hard about in order for God to intervene and give us a different solution. And so when Assyria had come in to Judea, having taken over the northern territory, what was formerly known as Israel, Hezekiah prayed deep. Lord, what am I going to do? These guys have pretty much taken out the whole of the Middle East. How are we going to survive? And he prays and he says, you know, don't worry. They'll be gone tomorrow. And they were gone. God gets them through the Assyrian invasion. And there are situations like that in which as we pray deep and dig deep, we, it is revealed that God's intention is that he will take us through that. And it will not touch us. But when it comes to Babylon, though, as Jeremiah and Ezekiel testified, and even Isaiah in his time, that's going to happen. Prepare yourself. This is the end of Judah as you know it. It must happen. And no praying is going to change the things that God says must happen. And if we pray, we pray alongside and say, let your will be done. That's the only prayer we have. It was the only prayer that Jesus had when he came facing the cross, right? We've got to go through it. Much like that book that my kids love and we all read, you know. Um, you know, you can't go over it. You can't go under it. We've got to go through it. You know, we're going on a beer hunt. We've got to go through it. The next problem I think we have with the text is how do we best interpret the soon in verse 1 and the time is near in verse 3? Do we throw out any sense of scaling, of scaling this into normative time because as Peter states that a thousand years are, are one day you know, with the Lord and one day is a thousand years to the Lord. So is he talking about normative time like minutes passing through a clock, or relative time, as in, well, relative to God. I think that in this situation, it is not a relative mentioning of the time is soon. It is better understood as what I would term normative time, like the next couple of days, or the next few months, or the next few years. Soon is that type of definition. I believe that with a broader sense of how prophecy functions, it is better to say that in relation to time, John is able to speak and encourage his first readers as though the things he is about to say matter to them and not merely to some future generation. This matters to you. 
This is something for you to do. Remember, we're not sealing the book up and putting it in a time capsule. This is for you. You need some, you've got something to do. And we will see that next week, right? Verse 3 also mentions that there is a blessing for the person who reads aloud the words of the prophecy. The blessed are those who hear and obey it. So remember, keeping the word doesn't mean keeping it in your memory. It's turning what we learn, we hear actively into active actions. Not hearing passively and then moving into passivity. Active hearing turns into active actions. When you understand the Hebrew, that's exactly what it means. The Shema is active, active, active. Active hearing. That's why Jesus attacked them because their hearing was passive. I just want to hear what he wants to say so I can catch him out. I'm not really looking in to hear him in order to react to it, other than to attack him. Active hearing is I need this like food to go through my system in order to energize me to do something. Active, active, active. As the following chapters come in the format of a letter, it seems to reflect the way a letter, these particular verses, in the first century would have been read aloud. So that person who's reading it aloud is blessed because he's proclaiming the word, though like it's like sitting amongst the congregation and preaching to them that which John has written. The only difference is it's a sermon that he has not written himself. But he is foretelling what John has already given. Here's the sermon for today. Now read it to them. So that's the blessing. And the manner with which the church now would have to hear that and obey it because it's coming from an apostle. This is what you need to do. Being present for the public reading and exposition of God's word is still an important part of our Christian walk and should not be neglected as we can be missing out on our time of blessing. Blesses the person who hears and blesses the person who reads aloud. Moving on to the next section of uh, the greeting to the seven churches, verses four to eight. So the seven churches. So is the church in Asia, modern-day Turkey, the only focal point for John's message? So is this just an Asian matter? Is this just a Turkish matter? There are two things worth considering when thinking this through. The highest concentration of Christian believers at this time was in Asia, was in modern-day Turkey. So it would appear that John's aim, at least was to send the letter to those who will be able to spread the word out to all other believers in the world. In other words, sending it to Asia was the most practical way of getting it out. So if you want to get stuff out there, I would say, boy, where's the highest concentration of Christians? You know, 
probably, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of tossing up between China and America, but I'm thinking, well, who's going to kind of get, who's got the strong media links, who's going to be able to get the connection? I might say, boy, best find American publisher, right? To get it out there. Let me hit up a Zondervan or a Nelson or, because that's going to get it out there. So it's a practical step. I'm going to send it to the Church of Asia because that's where it's going to get out. It's no longer Jerusalem. It's no longer Syria. Eventually it will be Alexandria, be, be Egypt. But at this time, it is Asia. The number seven is also the next key factor. It's an important number in the book of Revelation, but as you actually look at the Bible as a whole, the number seven is best understood as being significant and not necessarily always to be taken as literal because it has this symbolizing aspect of representing perfection or completeness We've got to understand that when a Hebrew writer writes, he has more of this idea of God's completeness in mind than he has the literal number seven. As we might understand it from a mathematical point of view. There are seven things. There are seven actual churches as though the other churches don't matter. And I think this is our next clue to say that within this sense, he is sending it to the complete church. So as people interacted this to the seven churches, they would have heard more to all the church as opposed to seven literal churches. This is for the complete church worldwide. And so that way, taking seven churches symbolically would also be misunderstanding a Hebrew writer. So with these two things in mind, it is best to see that the aim of John's revelation is to believers throughout the entire world and through history. The next important aspect of this section is the resurrection. An important factor within Revelation is the understanding of God's kingdom not being merely a future reality, but also a present one. The resurrection is the beginning of a new kingdom in which Christ is the first fruit, or new Adam, as Paul would pull him in Romans. And, and we as believers make up its citizens. Though this kingdom is not fully realized in the present age, it is nonetheless real for those who believe because it is, a it is secure in the knowledge, they are secure in the knowledge that Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. This also relates to the teaching of the parable of, John 20, of Matthew 24 and 25. As they are diligently at work for the kingdom and prepared for its full inauguration as priests of a new Eden, we must be found faithful. The kingdom is real for us now. 
And the security of that is the resurrection. For the believer, the resurrection is the beginning of the kingdom, not Christ's second coming. The unbelievers, however, will continue as if this has not happened. The resurrection, oh, I'm in doubt about that. I don't believe in all those kind of fairy tales in the Bible. And will weep and gnash their teeth as the Lord calls time on the current age because they would have missed out. They would have thought that, well, you know, um, when I see him and I have more empirical proof, the reality is that the empirical proof was already in the Gospels, that the new kingdom has already come. And we're only merely in a transition. You know, kind of, kind of, it kind of feels like this, you know, that, that, that time for those of you who have moved or, or, or that, that point where, you know, you're, you're calling up in the morning and, you know, the kingdom, you know, the keys have been handed in um, to the solicitor on that side. And then the keys, have, you hand the keys over to the solicitor and so that exchange has happened and then you've got that moving that's going on. You know, the, you can't go back to the world as it was before under Satan. It no longer exists. Jesus says, the keys of death and hate, I own everything. And it will be established in chapter 4. I'm already there. We're moving to that age. And so the person who has left that house with, with the solicitors, legally, they can't go and pick up those keys and say, I'm going to move back in. They've got to move on to where they're going to. Let he who is righteous be righteous still. Let he who is filthy be filthy still. The transition has already begun. And you're moving to your new home. There is no reversal. So for the, for, for when you understand that in legal terms, as you as you, as we, especially as we face that in chapter 4, when you understand that in legal terms, you suddenly get the mix of the fact that Boy, we really are in the age of the kingdom. Really. And there is no going back. There's no undoing those title deeds being reversed. So though this kingdom is not fully realized in the present age, it is nonetheless real for those who are believers. And we must stand on that point. The beginning and the end. So Jesus presents himself as the Alpha and the Omega. And Jesus' title as that points to his involvement as the creator of the world and also the fulfillment of it. So in other words, I am the beginning of how this world has actually come into place and also its end point. So from Genesis to Revelation, this is why we say that Jesus Christ is the very meaning of the, of the Gospels, of, of what we read in the text. Everything that comes in between, it's all about him. And never about us primarily. We move into the last section now. The vision of the Son of Man, verses 9 to 20. And fellowship in suffering. So John states that he is on Patmos because of his faithful witness to the truth. He can take that it can be taken that John connects to the events of this book and to the churches he is writing to as an example of one who is going through trials and tribulation in order to see the consummation of the age or the kingdom. In other words, 
John is living through it as well. He's not writing in an ivory tower saying, well, this is what you're going to face and God is really protecting me over here and life is really great. You know, got my feet up on the beach. He says, I'm here as a prisoner. I'm going through tribulation for the kingdom because, again, for him, the kingdom has already come. And so he shares in their fellowship in suffering. The cities named in Asia also correspond to the pastoral, the postal system at the time, which is, again, one of those historical facts. You dig up and you read the commentaries. It says this was the actual postal thing. So the letter aspect of it was real. This was actually going to go to, through the postal system of the ancient Romans. This reinforces the idea that John was writing a very practical letter and not writing some, some kind of cryptic prophecy that didn't have any meaning to the first century readers. The next section, the glorified Christ. The description of Christ should not be read as a literal portrait of Jesus but it's actually more symbolic, reflecting his nature and his function. So I know that this is one of those, you know, you've, you ever, you know, meet the, the kind of black, you know, his, his Hebrew Israelites or the rest of it. They will point to texts like this and go, this is an actual portrait of Jesus. This is all literal. And then again, not reading it, quote unquote, as a Hebrew. So it's, a, it's like the name that they call themselves don't even pass the grade. Hebrew is right. Well, read it as a Hebrew then. This is not a portrait of Jesus where now I can paint that and say this is a picture of Jesus. This is exactly what he looks like. But it's symbolic. They are all reflective of some things. And so to some extent, there's a pictorial con picture if, if I could see Jesus is this what he would actually look like well who knows but this is what John saw spiritually about Jesus the long robe and the sash speak of him functioning as a high priest the white hair speaks of him being eternal and wise not black Burning eyes speak of him seeing through falsehood. You can't fake with Jesus. My eyes will see through you. Burning bronze feet speak of stability. And I believe also judgment as we think of the bronze altar, of where those sacrifices, they were burnt, the burning bronze altar that would have been there putting the sacrifices on. His feet are coming, they're, 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 they're stable like bronze, but they're on fire because they're bringing judgment too. The voice like many waters is like the sound of God and an army. In other words, this is the host of heaven. When he speaks, he speaks for heaven. And all heaven speaks and agrees with him. Like all of us saying the same thing at the same time. You know, you think of those concerts where, you know, when people are singing the song and everyone in the, in the audience is singing along with the guys on the stage and it's like he speaks and when he, Jesus speaks, it's the whole host of heaven are speaking with him. 
the sword from his mouth definitely speaks of judgment. That piercing through. Remember that text from Hebrews? The word of God is like a sword piercing through the mouth. Getting through the nitty gritty. Penetrating the heart. The next section is the commission. John, in similar fashion to others who have encountered the angel of the Lord uh, or a manifestation of the spirit of Yahweh, they fall down like dead. Like the clay to the potter, we are unmade when we encounter the creator God. We are not equals. We will not give God a piece of our mind just like Job promised he would he would when you read through it I'm gonna give God a piece of my mind would tell him you know yeah water you don't do this to me you don't do this to someone who loves you like this but when he encountered him he was unmade Stephen Fry is not gonna look at God and say cancer in children he's gonna be unmade he will have nothing to say. He will fall down dead and say, you are the creator. What can I say to you? What can John do? When they saw him on the mount in transfiguration, they, they were scared. They were not brave. When you meet your creator. It's one of the reasons why I love that scene in, um, in Ben-Hur. When Jesus goes, there's a, that, that scene where um, Ben-Hur is going through uh, um, Galilee. He's going through one of the towns of Galilee. And, and they don't want Ben-Hur to have any water. But Jesus comes and, and gives him water. And he's just about to slap the thing out of Jesus' hands. And the soldier looks at him and he's like, he's unmade. You can't slap it out of Jesus' hands unless he wants you to. <laughs> He's unmade. I love that for, that for that very purpose. When you meet your creator and, he and, and, and your spirit is subject to him. Can't do nothing to him. It's going to come like Robocop, isn't it? Directive three or four or whatever it is. <laughs> yeah, you, can't, you can't mess with your maker. <laughs> we got that programmed in for you. <laughs> I've watched a lot of movies. We're unmade. It may be intentional that Jesus wants his church to know that he lives forevermore. You know, why big up? You know, this whole idea, I'm, I'm, I'm the God who's, who's, who lives forevermore. I, I've risen from the dead. Why big that up? And, I, and it feels like, you know, that, is that, that I don't want to say it in Jesus' terms, like buttering up, but sometimes when, <laughs> God forgive me, I'm going to use this reference because I, I like it so much. There's a, there's a, a Richard Pryor skit where he, on Sunset Strip, don't watch it, because <laughs> stay saved in that regards, where he talks about the time when he burnt himself up. 
And there's this point where the nurses every day were talking to him about the next treatment where they were going to put the skin grafts on him. And they kept on saying, we're going to get this thing up. And, and he didn't realize, but he's, obviously when he went for it, he didn't realize that they were buttering him up because he said it was going to be so painful. But when Jesus is speaking to us, much like that, it's like saying, you're going to go through difficult times, but I am the resurrection and the life. It's going to be all right. It's going to be difficult. And it's like, I need you to understand who I am. Because when you go through it, that's, what's, that's what you're going to be able to hold on to. It's like as if Jesus wants us to hear what he has accomplished before he mentions what we'll have to go through. I've done this. And you'll have to go through this. The seven lampstands, again, is again some, that whole idea of regurgitating or reusing imagery such as we already see within the temple, which is the menorah, right? That would have sat within the temple. And, and this is how the church is depicted, as being in the very temple of God, as being that, that very Jewish symbol. And again, some can really take that to see that the symbolism of, of how Israel has been transferred into the church. That very ancient Jewish symbol now becomes the symbol of God's church, the menorah. Time is against us, and let's go to application. So what's our takeaway? It's not easy coming away from the seeming safety of our presuppositions. But if we are to gain a full appreciation for the pastoral content of Revelation, we need to move away from our preconceptions that place a limit on what we can take away from the book. We also need to re redefine what prophecy means. Though it most often speaks to the future, it is not at the detriment of speaking to you now. When thinking about the meaning of the uncovering or the apocalypse, we need to address the limits we place on this as our own, as, as only referring to the end times. When considering the broad range of the book's theme, it is safer to say that God is lifting the lid on the spiritual realm. The blessing of this book can only come to those who hear it in its true form. Not that limited form. As we will see next week, it is a book with a mission to prepare Jesus' bride so that she will be diligent, diligent and prepared. For the true believer, Jesus is already present in their lives and stands as judge over it and over them. It is, however, the unbelievers who will only see him at the end. If you see Jesus now, that's a good place. If you only see him at the end, let's pray. Father, your word is true.
And as we come to grips with it there, Lord Father, we know there's going to be challenges. Challenges maybe even to decades worth of, of misconceptions of what your word really says. And, the, you know, and it's not limited to revelation. We know this, dear Lord God. We know we can come so often to the, to the word of God with a 21st century mind and never pay any considerations to the history of the church. And it's like we only think that, well, only what happens now matters. But, Lord Father, as this has gone out to the seven churches, the complete church, the church not only right now at this point in history, but all churches throughout all time, dear Lord Father, you have spoken to all your people. And as a result, dear Lord Father, we need to bear that in mind, that when you speak as one, we need to hear as a collective. One of the downfalls that, Lord, we face and one of the challenges we're going to face over these 13 weeks is that we are so individualistically minded and we, want, and we feel compelled to take away what it means to me as opposed to what it means to us. Change that mindset there, Lord God. Because when you speak to the church, you speak to us. Even though me is included, but it's the us. What it meant for them back in the first century, it still means for us today. Are we diligent? Are we getting on? Are we using your resources? Are we, fill, are we building up the flock? Are we nourishing one another? Or are we abusing one another? So we're learning through this week of prayer, you know, in James 4. You know, is that our priority? Is it, are we, 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 we here for the drama? Or are we here to build each other up? Are we prepared, Lord? Is it all good, you know, when all is well and there's, you know, no COVID restrictions and there's, there's no issues to go in, there's no drama in your life? Are we prepared to go through the night seasons of our lives? Are we prepared to go through those times where we don't even sense that you're there, but we know you're there? That's why you keep on telling us, I am, I am the resurrection of life. Do you believe this? Even if they take your life, I will raise it up. Does only this life matter? So that when the night comes, we, we want to run back to whatever remnants we have. But Lord, as we see that theme, especially be, being played out in chapter 4, that the, the title deeds have already been handed over. This is already the kingdom of God. There's no running back. Lord, help us to wrestle with these things. Help us, Lord God, to just be able to connect with that pastoral content of the book and, and say, Lord, yeah, this is about me getting my heart right now. There's no point trying to figure out when you're going to come. Let me, just, let me just say you're here. And furthermore, in me through your spirit. So we grasp these truths there, Lord God. Give us grace to, to follow through. Give us grace, dear Lord God, to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. In Jesus' name. Amen. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.